Morning, Bethel. All right. Well, if you're not still there, um, go ahead and turn back to uh, John chapter 13. So we're in the middle of a series called Gospel Culture. So we started it last Sunday, and it's going to go for the next several weeks. And so what does that mean? Maybe um, you missed last week, or maybe you're visiting with us. What's a gospel culture? Um, the point of the, of the series is summarized pretty well in this book. It's called The Gospel, How the Church Portrays the Beauty of Christ. So I recommended it highly last week. I'll recommend it highly again this week. Um, I'll read a couple quotes from it this week. Um, but one of the things Ray Ortland says is the gospel calls for more than doctrinal subscription. It also calls for cultural incarnation. We would be unfaithful to settle for doctrinal correctness without also establishing a culture of grace in our churches. So doctrine and disposition, our attitudes, our disposition, our conduct should be in line with, in accord with what we believe, our creed. The doctrine of the gospel is intended by God to create a beautiful, loving culture of grace. So that needs to be the concern of all of us here. That's on all of our job descriptions here at Bethel. We are certainly far from perfect, just like any other church. But let, hopefully, as, as we go through this series, my desire certainly is, and I hope that it's yours as well, that we would long for and that we would be all in to make Bethel healthy and beautiful, to protect that health, to cultivate her health and beauty. So let's stop giving the world an excuse to ignore Jesus. Right? For the glory of Christ, the good of our wider community that God's planted us in, um, we need to be on guard and we need to be at work cultivating this. Um, so again, Ortland writes this. He says, the test of a gospel-centered church is its doctrine on paper, which is very important. I'm not going to minimize that. But it's its doctrine on paper plus its culture in practice. So John 13, I don't know if any of you were... Some of you might be paying attention, you know this, so I'll just say it. John 13 was actually our text for Good Friday, okay? It's our text again here. I'm not just recycling that one, don't worry. Um, I focused almost completely on Jesus' service for us, toward us, to us um, that night and spent very little time on our loving service for one another. And so this message, in a sense, will be the reverse. We have to focus on the service of Jesus if you're going to talk about John 13, you can't ignore that. It's foundational. It's, he's the horse that drives the cart of our service. But we're going to focus primarily this morning on our love toward each other, um, our service for one another. So let's dive in here. John 13. There's an outline in the bulletin, and then also you'll see the uh, slides on the screen if you want to follow along that way. Um, we've got three points that are fairly Straightforward. All right. So, first off, Jesus loved and served us to the utmost. John 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, 
having loved his own who were in the world, his disciples, he loved them to the end or to the utmost. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So many of us are maybe familiar with this passage, um, but for those of you that may not be, this job of foot washing was considered below the dignity of a Jewish slave. It was for the lowest of the low, and yet Jesus washes his disciples' feet. So this just was not done. In fact, um, D.A. Carson, one of my um, seminary professors, New Testament scholar, he wrote, there is no instance in either Jewish or Greco-Roman sources of a superior washing the feet of an inferior. No examples. So this is intended to be shocking. In fact, normally, you would wash their feet as they come in, right? He intentionally does it when they're at the dinner table later to draw attention to it. There's purpose here and intentionality. So you can imagine how the disciples are totally stunned. But as stunning as it was that their Lord and their teacher took the place of the lowest menial slave to wash their dirty feet, and remember there's animals. Animals, you know, like leave their mark, if you know what I'm saying. So you can get why this was not just the job for anybody. And it wasn't a very attractive job for whoever had it. So as stunning as it was that he did this, it was nothing in comparison to what it pointed to. The utterly shocking thing that was coming, namely the cross, the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us, the Word made flesh, dying the most humiliating and shameful of deaths on the cross, in our place, for our sins, so that his blood could cleanse us. So the washing of that dirt humbly like a servant off of their feet was a little living parable of the ultimate cleansing that we all need, that those disciples needed, that washes away the ultimate dirt and defilement and what only the blood of Jesus can wash off the guilt of our sin. So the meaning of the foot washing is unpacked in John 13 really in three ways. It was love. You see that in verse 1, right? Having loved his own who were in the the world, he loved them to the end, and then you see the foot washing. And it's even enemy love, right? Because he washed Judas' feet. So this is to the utmost, the nature of his love. Secondly, in verses 6 to 9, you see that Again, it's pointing ahead to a greater cleansing. It's a parable of the cleansing of the atonement, Jesus' blood covering and washing away our sin. And the reason we see this pointer is the way that Peter and Jesus interact. 
You see what's going on there? So he says, Peter, <laughs> if you think you don't need my service, you are not one of mine. You have no share with me. Okay? So if you, if you think, again, it's a pointer, and he will understand afterwards what's going on. Peter, if I don't cleanse you, if my blood doesn't wash you, you won't be a co-heir with me. You won't be a son of my father. You won't be one of his children. If you proudly stiff-arm my service of you as if you don't need it, as if you don't need this cleansing, you won't be an heir of the internal inheritance that belongs to all of God's beloved children. So if you refuse the work, the service of Christ on your behalf, on the cross, you reject the gospel. That goes not just for Peter, it goes for all of us. Okay, so the Son of Man came not to be served, Mark 10.45, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then the third way it's unpacked in verses 12 to 17, this will lead us into our second point, is it's an example of the humble, loving service that should characterize any disciple of Jesus. So when you know this humble, loving service of King Jesus... What happens is you're enabled, you're empowered to give this kind of loving service to your brothers and sisters. Or if you flip it around, if you and I have trouble loving, if there are selfish or prideful limits on our, lo- on our love, then maybe we don't know well the utmost nature of Jesus' love and service for us. At least we're living out of touch with it. Okay, so if we're refusing to stoop to serve others, we've lost, sort, we've, we've lost sight of the Lord of Lords in the loincloth. Whether it's the loincloth serving the disciples, washing the disciples' feet, or the loincloth as he's hung on that stake, dying for us to cleanse us. So, what we need is to be reminded of whose we are, and therefore, who we are. So if you're a Christian, then the weight of verses 12 to 17 need to weigh on you, need to weigh on me. We are. Whose are we and who are we? Second point, we are his servants, his disciples. Look at verses 12 to 17. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things... Blessed are you if you do them. So, interesting thing. If you look at the other parallel accounts in the other Gospels, the upper room, Last Supper accounts, you'll find something interesting as far as one of the topics of conversation that night. Luke 22. You can just listen. By the time you get there, I'll probably be done. So, Right after Jesus said, behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. So it's the same context. 
Luke 22:24. A dispute also arose among them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Did you know that that came up at the Lord's Supper? What we call the Lord's Supper. The, the Last Supper, I'm sorry. And so Jesus said to them, the kings of the nations exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as the one who serves? So he either said that and then did this incredibly powerful living illustration, or he did that and then he explained it. Well, he certainly explains it here in John 13. So he strips down to the rags of this menial slave. Everybody looked down on that person in that culture, and he washed their feet. Like powerful living illustrations. You can imagine how these guys were not just shocked to silence by his act, except for Peter, but they were also shamed to silence if that was one of the topics of conversation that night. So here they are jockeying for position, thinking of themselves first, and he's assuming the lowest place en route to dying the most shameful death for their very pride and selfishness and other sins. It's beautiful. So if Jesus absolutely destroyed the social hierarchies of his time for the sake of love, this means that the gospel destroys all the social, racial, ethnic, economic hierarchies and barriers that so often divide us or keep us from loving one another. So I mentioned this before. Just, this is just as a little kind of path of application. We won't trace it out very far, but I remember hearing um, the Bidiana Buile, who's a pastor. He's planting a church in Washington, D.C., um, and he was in his 40s before he remembers a white person opening a door for him. He's a black man. Like, I just, what? Like, doesn't that make you want to weep? This is not like an overly sensitive guy. We should go out of our way as the church of Jesus Christ to choose the path of servanthood and love for our brothers and sisters, especially in the face of the typical dividing lines so prevalent in our society. Would you pray with me that our church would not be a part of what's so true across our country that Sunday morning is the most segregated hour? Now, we can't force it in some weird, hokey way, but certainly do you love all the people around you equally? Or do you just go the comfortable path? So, and, and then as far as our unity is, is concerned within our church family, what characterizes it? Where there's just beautiful conspicuous equality, rich and poor, racial dividing lines, just they aren't there. Socioeconomic, educational, generational. How about socially awkward and, you know, the, the kind of smooth extroverts? Like extroverts and introverts unified in the church. Let's do it. 
So what is going to dictate who you love and the extent of your love? Are, are you going to let the world, the hierarchies, the dividing walls that are so common in our world dictate how we love, how much we're willing to love people? Or are we going to have the love of Christ, the humble, servant-hearted, barrier-blowing-up love of Jesus to dictate it for us? So when we know how he treated us, outsiders, dirty rebels, we will be willing and able to love anyone, everyone to the fullest extent. So in the world, the powerful just do not do the menial jobs, typically, right? I know, I know, undercover boss. Like, I almost started with an introduction about that, but it just seems a little trite relative to this. And by the way, um, I will give you a little bit of the introduction that, that never was. Um, how many of you are even familiar with this? I've never watched one. Sorry, but let's see if other people have. Okay, that's helpful. So, you know, you can imagine the undercover boss, he goes in and he kind of goes entry-level position and, you know, the camera crew and then, um, and there's a way that they mask that if you're wondering. I'm not going to get into that um, so that it doesn't give it away. And then, hello, you know, the end of the week, I'm actually the CEO. Um, well, guess what? Yes, but these bosses find out how hard it is to be in the lower role. They are often humorously incompetent at those menial jobs. Well, that's not Jesus. <laughs> not at all. He is the sovereign servant. So he's the truest human that ever walked the planet, and he's also the most humble man and greatest servant that ever took the lower role. And he actually, even though he ascended to the right hand of the Father, he continues to serve us. Those guys just go back to their roles. Okay. So anyway, in the world, powerful don't do the menial jobs. They're protected from those things. In the church, we're all on equal playing field, right? We're all equals in Christ. Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. Imagine that in the first century. There's neither slave nor free. Can you imagine how that could have created a little click in the church, no male and female, for you all one in Christ. So as people see the church, as they see our church, as they see Christians, we represent Jesus in Newcastle County. As they see us loving and serving one another, they ought to see something strange and wonderful, something beautiful, right? So, you know, there are things that dictate these decisions and, and how we love and so forth in our world, bottom line, Wall Street, values, upward mobility. That's not the guiding light here. King Jesus is guiding us here, and here's what he says in Mark 10. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. One story that came to mind, Brother Jay, you're going to be bothered by the fact that I share this because I know you don't want any attention drawn to you. Um, years ago, we had a friend from one of the kind of state-run houses down the street 
and he had a very um, explosive accident in the bathroom. And probably very few people know, but Jay cleaned up that mess, and there's a lot of cracks to clean up in that bathroom. Okay? So just an example, and I think we're going to hopefully share some more community discussion time, and I'm going to share a few more as well. But here, here's, the, here's one of the questions I want you to think about. Who do you think you are? I could ask that in a different way. <laughs> Sometimes we turn that around. Um, well, anyway. Who do you think you are? Who's your master? Whom do you serve and how? You're not greater than your master. I'm not greater than my master. He is teacher and Lord. He is our master. This ought that he gives us, this commandment that he gives us, shouldn't land on us lightly. It's not a suggestion. And each of us taking it seriously is essential if we're going to cultivate a gospel culture here at Bethel. So if you know and experience this loving service by King Jesus, then you are enabled to. You don't begrudge the call to serve your brothers and sisters because you're not any greater than your master. Your master is the greatest. And he became the slave of all. There's no entitlement in the kingdom of heaven except, this is awesome, our sinful entitlement is killed by a greater entitlement. You know what our entitlement is to an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade? We have love that we can never be separated from, from the most loving person in the universe. So we're entitled to all of these great blessings. But that should actually free us to lay down our entitlements and rights for the sake of loving others. So we're not above certain jobs and we're certainly not above certain people. And I think that here is one very important application. Are any of you looking around at how you haven't been loved or aren't being loved here? Do you find yourself kind of going into that path with some regularity? Rather than looking around, what if we looked up, or maybe it's down, at Jesus at our feet? At how we have been loved and served, how we are being loved and served by Jesus. And then we look around for who we can love. That will, that will get us to stop complaining and start loving. And I, I'm not saying this because there's any, you know, elephant in the room except this is characteristic in any church because it's characteristic in any human heart. So we've got to fight this. Stop the complaining, start loving. Stop criticizing, start serving. Stop endlessly evaluating and start cultivating the kind of culture that we long to see, the kind of culture that 
Jesus is seeding right here. So I think oftentimes when we're feeling that way, like looking around, kind of licking our wounds or, you know, I've tried. We give ourselves a pass because we look around and say, I don't see anyone loving or serving me like this. I don't see anyone else loving and serving like this. And we feel justified. Or again, we've tried, it hasn't been reciprocated, so we throw up our hands. Well, just stop. What if we're looking down at Jesus or if you want to look up? What if he gave up on you that quickly? Like, think about how fickle, unloving, prone to wander, you know, selfish, prideful, we all are. What, what if he dealt with us that way? No, 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 he hasn't dealt with us that way. He is an incredibly stubborn servant, wonderfully so. And if we're looking at him with the way he's dealt with us, then we're going to have perseverance to love stubbornly, even if it's not reciprocated. And when you're looking around, um, again, I, I hope that doesn't land lightly. Yeah, but. No, 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 no. Isn't Jesus' love and service of you some, something? <laughs> Isn't he someone? Doesn't that matter? So John 13, 12, do you understand what I've done to you? Like, he's speaking not just to his disciples here, ultimately to us, because this is pointing to the cross, the ultimate love and service. You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I've done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the end of what have you done for me lately as we look around. This is the end of, I'm not going to stoop to do that. For so that could be in your marriage, Christian husband or wife. It could be in your family, Christian father or mother or son or daughter. Certainly it applies in the life of our church. And as we do look around and love. Let's make sure even then we keep our eyes fixed on our humble servant Savior. Otherwise, it's so easy for a poisonous root of bitterness or self-righteousness to grow underneath all of our lowly, humble service. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis about humility. He said, to even get near humility, even for a moment, is like a drink of cold water to a man in a desert. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person. That's a great description. Um, who's always telling you that, of course, he's nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility he will not be thinking about himself at all. Okay, so Jesus loved and served us to the utmost. We are his servants and his disciples. We belong to him, and that shapes how we follow him, how we love and serve others. 
So his servant love is like a nuclear power plant example that lights up our lives with humble, loving service for one another. And so the power of his example is what makes our example powerful. So let's look at that lastly here. And now we're going to slide down to verses 34 and 35 um, that Tyler read a little earlier. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I've loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So new commandment. Is it new? Well, kind of sounds kind of old, like Leviticus 19 old. You know, love your neighbor as yourself. So what's new? New in what way? Well, it's new in the how, right? Just as I have loved you, humbly, selflessly, sacrificially, to the utmost. Like as in greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 13. And so we also die daily our own selfish desires for the good of others. So the how is highlighted here, but also the why. You see it there in verse 35? By this all people will know that you're my disciples. That's why. That's got a lot of significant implications for us. First off, notice the if. They will only know what they ought to know, what they need to know, if. By this all people will know that you're my disciples. If. If. For good or for ill, we represent Jesus in Newcastle County. What will people know of Jesus if they know us? You knew I was going to quote Orland, right? So here it is. Okay. We belong to the one who is altogether lovely, which means there can be nothing tawdry, cheap, sneaky, or nasty about us that should not be corrected immediately by his gospel. How will people on earth see the true beauty of our head, our authority, head body imagery, if his body below is scarred with ugliness like everything else in this world? We have no right to disfigure his image upon us. Among the followers of Christ, beauty has authority. Jesus told us that the unbelieving world will identify us as Christians only as we reflect his loveliness. The command of Christ is that we love one another. The example of Christ is that we die for one another. The promise of Christ is that our love will show a skeptical world the difference he really makes. Love is Christ's authorized way for us to be convincing. People today don't care about doctrine, but they do care about love. And in that, he was actually on the shoulders of Francis Schaeffer, Mark of a Christian, which is a little exposition, very short, on this passage. Um, People don't care today about doctrine, but they do care about love. The world is not impressed by anything about us but the love of Christ, nor should they be if we fail to love one another in ways so striking that we actually start looking like Jesus. Then the world has the right to judge that we know nothing of him. They might be wrong. We might indeed be Christians, but the world is right to dismiss unloving Christians as unchristian. Jesus himself gave them that right, right here. Now, just pause on the Ortland quote. I have a little bit more to read. This is exactly what Jesus prays for just a few chapters later in John 17. He prays, Father, as you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. I ask that they may be one even as we are one. 
I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, loving unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. And then Ortland continues, how justifiably does the world look at divided churches and think, when you Christians figure out how to get along, we might talk, but until then, we're not interested. What's at stake among us Christians is nothing less than the testimony that the Father has sent the Son. It's not just our credibility at stake, but Jesus's as the one who's sent from God. The unity within our churches, as well as with all true Christians, born out of love, is not a little garnish on the side, if we happen to like that sort of thing. Our unity exalts Jesus in the eyes of the world as the true Son of God, sent from the Father, all his claims convincing, all his purposes desirable, all his promises reliable. This was important enough to Jesus that he prayed for it. Do we? Do we share his passion? Or do we treat it as an option while giving ourselves to our own priorities? So the power of example, Jesus' example is most powerful, but it is intended to empower our example. And I have some examples here, and I'm going to skip them so that we can get to the community discussion here in a minute, and maybe you'll share some of these examples that you've experienced. But at least let me draw attention to one obvious example, and that's mothers. Christian mothers. Do you know who they are? Do you know who they are? They are daughters of the king of the universe. They are heirs of the grace of life. They will reign forever in the new heavens and the new earth, and they constantly and sacrificially and humbly serve insolent two-year-olds and ungrateful, take it for granted, why didn't you do thus and such middle schoolers? And moody teenagers with disrespectful, bite-the-hand-that-feeds-you attitudes. And many of them also faithfully serve husbands that are pretty much blind to what they do all day, every day. How does good food get into that fridge and onto your plate every day? How do those clean dishes appear in the cabinets day after day? How do clean clothes keep showing up in your drawer week after week after week? So anyway, on the side, you might want to rise up and call them blessed today. Thank you. And moms, in the midst of all of that, can I encourage you to keep your eyes on Jesus? He's been picking up after us and serving us with, the, with only the rare thank you, I mean, relative to all the gifts and blessings and service. He's been doing that for a whole lot longer than you. And this sympathetic high priest wants to empower you to humbly love in such a beautiful, persevering way that your children and many others watching will know that you are his disciple. So Christian community is intended by God. Jesus died for this. He prayed for this. To be a public, winsome, corporate apologetic, like an argument, like a living argument for the truth of the gospel. So we are to be a living advertisement for the power of the gospel, an attractive countercultural community. Um, Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, writing a century after the Apostle John, who wrote this, he wrote, The pagans of his day marveled at the love of the Christian fellowship, especially as it faced sometimes ferocious persecution. See how they love one another. Tertullian writing, I think, of John in this passage. So we could summarize it like this, and then we'll... We'll close, and I think we're going to pass on the song so we can 
spend some time in discussion. Um, we know, and I mean that in the sense of experience, we know the servant love of Jesus in order that we can show the servant love of Jesus in order that the world will know the servant love of Jesus. So we experience it, we know it, not just as an end in itself, like we're some cul-de-sac, but in order to show the servant love of Jesus so that the world will know the servant love of Jesus. So we need gospel doctrine and gospel culture. Jesus died for it. He prayed for it. Let's pray for it. And let's die daily to our pride and our selfishness, whatever gets in the way, so that we can show this humble servant love to the dying world around us. Just like Jesus said, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for demonstrating your love in that while we were still sinners, you sent Jesus to die for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for loving us to the utmost. No greater love than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And we thank you that you have done just that for us. You've made us your friends by your grace. And I pray that our community, our relationships, our hearts would reflect that and make it visible. For the sake of your great name, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.